Green light's on. I'm ready. It's great to be back again, and it's good to be here today, this afternoon. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for the honor, and thank you for your interest in studying the Word of God. And I hope that what we talk about today will help you. It's always a thrill for me. It's not just an honor, but it's the excitement of a preacher's life to be able to see the light bulb going off in, in somebody's head, you know, if, if you can read their face or if you can just get a little verbal feedback that, that you've helped somebody in some way, not necessarily to share something new, which we always envision teaching being that way, but just to be able to encourage and maybe open up a little bit different avenue of thinking that will cause some growth to arrive there. Thank you for the meal, ladies. Thank you very much. Maybe gentlemen, too. I don't know who, who all was, was a part of that. I guess guys and girls. Thank you so much for the meal. And after going through that meal and being as full as we are, kind of reminds me of a time when I was preaching a gospel meeting. I, I was much younger then, and the guy that was, that was the preacher there was introducing me, and um, very respected brother, and so I looked up to him. First thing he said right out of the gate, got up and he said, I'd rather hear Carrie preach than eat. I thought, wow. Wow, that's good. <laughs> then he paused and he said, I've heard him eat and I'd rather hear him preach. <laughs> completely, completely pulled the rug out from under me. But I've enjoyed all of our time together. I wish we had more time to just talk because I, I, I really enjoy that. I appreciate that. I learn, try to remember as much as I can, but I can assure you that I will go home being very, very encouraged. You've heard a lot of lessons here, and at a lectureship, I kind of liken it sometimes to uh, trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant, because you, you, you just get so much material, there's no way that you can absorb, there's no way that you can soak it all in. So it's going to take some time, so in the days to come, you're going to be thinking, well, who said that anyway? You know, was that, was that the guy from Texas, or was that the guy from Alabama, the guy from Tennessee, or the guy from New Hampshire? I just had to do that. Just to say. See, when I was, it's pretty close. Okay, I'll, I'll work on that. Yeah. So, some of them, some of them didn't even get it. Yeah. See, when I was growing up in Tennessee, and we had somebody, kinfolk from the north, come down. We didn't realize that people made fun of the way we talk in Tennessee. Really, we did not. We did not. And we'd laugh at those guys. We would imitate those guys. Can you believe the way that he said that? And and that's just the way that we grew up. And so I'm going to go back home and tell them that the people in New Hampshire treated us really, really well. God bless you. We really, really do appreciate you. And um, if you get down to Middle Tennessee, we hope you can stop in at the Bible College. Visit us any time that you can. And if you're up in my neck of the woods, which is about 15 miles north, uh, I live, I don't live in any city at all. I was actually raised in a place called Frogtown. <laughs> No joke, no joke, still there. There's a, there's a curve in the road and a few ponds and that's it. Now, that's the big city that I grew up in. But um, the, the, the congregation that I preach at is the uh, West End Church of Christ there in Livingston. We'd love to have you there. Love to have you there if you can ever visit with us. I appreciate these guys and, and the work that you've done and, and, and all your lessons. I wish I could, could hear all of them. Let me, let me say something about the, uh, the fire hydrant illustration that I used just a minute ago. When you go to a lectureship, when you hear um, 
more than just two or three speakers especially, you're going to find that we don't see everything exactly alike. You're going to say, well, I thought that this speaker said this, but he seems to say something a little different. He seems to say something a little different. If that does not involve a matter of faith, if that's a matter of opinion, that's good. That's good. Because the last thing that we need is a situation in the brotherhood where everybody, in just a uniform way, imitates and repeats the same the same expressions, the same kind of views, doesn't have any kind of difference of opinion, that's actually dangerous. It's actually dangerous. It's dangerous for any, it's dangerous for anybody to exalt, let's start with a Bible, a Bible college, and just go from, from, from that, oh, we're going to do whatever they say, or a preacher training school, a commentator, a program, a paper, or anything like that. So rather than looking at that and saying, well, I noticed that there's a little bit of difference of opinion. <clears throat> we don't have a lot, but we're going to, you're going to have some of that. But what I'm saying is that is healthy. That is healthy. It is not good. It is not good to have a situation where everybody just repeats the same thing. I grew up in the Southern Baptist group, Southern Baptist denomination. And uh, what they used to publish years ago were called, uh, the, the Sunday school literature was called Uniform Bible Lessons. And let me tell you, they were uniform. You, you walk the chalk and, 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 and you go right down that line. You don't deviate from it. And um, you can't have that. You can't have that and have the New Testament church as, as it should be because everybody needs to study for themselves. And inevitably, when that happens, you're going to have some, some, some differences of opinion. One other thing, and then I want to get into the lesson today, is that when we, when we study from the advantage point, not just a vantage point, but the advantage point of view that we have back at these characters. We have the luxury of not having gone through the trials that these fellows did. And so it's pretty easy for us to say, there's where David went wrong, there's where Moses went wrong, and Abraham shouldn't have done this, and you know, Elijah, you know, here's where he messed up, and, and Elijah. And it may not be a necessary exhortation, but just a reminder, just a reminder to all of us. When you look at yourself and you ask the question, what would I have done? How would I have handled that situation? It, it causes you to appreciate those guys. I'm just saying those guys are human. Those guys, that's what James 5 says. James 5, uh, 17, Elijah was a man, King James says, of like passions or, or feelings. He had human feelings just like we do. And I think we, we can tend to forget that sometimes. Um, so we look at a story like David, and we say, how, how did he do what he did? Because he was human. And how did Moses get that discouraged? How did Elijah get that discouraged? And sometimes we, we, we might put them up on such a pedestal that it's not really realistic. And so as you look at these men, remember, they are human. They are human. And I say that because I've... I've listened to Christian people that get involved in something that's wrong, or maybe they've got a child that's done something wrong, and they just, they, they, they just blame themselves to the point to where, even though God has forgiven them, if they need to be forgiven of anything, they still can't let it go, still can't let it go. And um, I think it helps to, to do what I'm talking about, to go back and look at some of these characters sometimes and realize they were human, you're human, you're going to make mistakes. Brother Guy Woods used to say if it weren't for stories like the stories we find about the Apostle Peter and how that he stuck one foot in his mouth and then stuck the other foot in his mouth, you know, and stories like that in the Bible. He said, 
He said, if it weren't for stories like that in the Bible, he said, I might get so discouraged I'd just quit. Now, that, that's a guy that studied the Bible quite a bit. And I, I've, I've always remembered what he said about that. So I think those are some of the preliminaries that I just um, am, am speaking off the cuff here about. Um, and let's, let's get into the text. I'll tell you what our game plan is here today. Nothing fancy about it. Nothing complicated about it. I'm just going to do what we're supposed to do, and that is I'm going to open the Bible. I'm going to read it. I'm going to explain a few things as best I can. And then I'm going to apply what we see to our lives today. Okay? So let's get to it. Let's go back. Let's go back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. And let me overlap with Brother Doug's lesson this morning just a little bit. But I have to start here. Because now we're making a transition. We're making the transition from Elijah to Elisha. And I have been told that... When I say, with my southern accent, Elijah and Elisha, that sometimes you can't tell the difference. So that's why if I seem to put a little bit too much emphasis on it, I'm, I'm just trying to, to separate them. All right, so in 1 Kings chapter 19, God told Elijah that he had this work for him to do, the last things that he needed to do, and one of them is to anoint... Elijah, this is verse 16. Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you will anoint to be prophet in your room or place, literally a place. In other words, you're going to take his place. That's what God is telling him here. He's saying that uh, uh, Elijah will take your place. So in verse 19... The Bible says, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. So this evidently is symbolic of the fact that he's going to be a successor here. The Bible says in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray you, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said unto him, go back again, for what have I done to you? You remember that's similar to what happened in Luke chapter 9 toward the end. You remember the fellow that said that to Jesus, I'm, I'm going to bid farewell to those that are at my house. And that's when Jesus got onto him and he talked about putting your hand to the plow and looking back. Well, Jesus was able to see his heart. That's the whole thing about that context. Jesus was able to know their hearts. And so even though it was the same request, it was from a different motive. Because Elijah meant it. Elijah meant that he would go tell them goodbye, and then he would do the work that God gave him to do. And so God knew that, and Elijah knew that. The Bible tells us in verse 21, he returned back from him, took a yoke of oxen and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. So he's... And a little bit of on-the-job, on-the-site training right now. Now then, let's go to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. This is our text for today. I'm just going to read through this again, offer a few comments as we go through it, and then we're going to look at a few lessons to, to take with us. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> 
And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, one of the most famous and exciting stories in all of Scripture, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The sons of the prophets that were at Bethel came forth to Elijah and said unto him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from your head today? And he said, Yes, I know it. Hold you your peace. Now I'm reading from the King James Version, but a lot of times I'll leave out the these and the thous and just put them in the modern English. Now when he says from your head, the word head there means a position. Oftentimes in the Bible you'll find that the word head is used in, in the sense of a position or a role, kind of like we talk about a head of a company or head of an organization today. So he is your head, that is, he is your master. Uh, the New King James would say, from over you, and that's the idea. So what you find here then is that, that somehow this has been communicated. And I don't know all the people that God told this to, but he had to tell somebody. Maybe he told Elijah, he could have told Elijah also, could have told all the prophets, or he could have told Elijah, I'm taking you. I'm taking you. And by the way, you know, what was it that Elijah had asked? Elijah had asked, take my life. He's about to get that answered, isn't he? And so they knew it. Elijah knows that he's going to leave this world. Elisha knows that he, Elijah that is, is going to leave this world. And the sons of the prophets in these places, they, they have found it out. How quickly, I don't know, but they know that he's going to leave. So the Bible says in verse 4, Elijah said to him, Elisha, tarry here. And he said, I pray you, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. So first to Bethel, that's a hot spot. That is a seat of idolatry. That's one of the places where Jeroboam set up that original idolatry. Now we go to Jericho, the first city that the Israelites conquered when they went into the land of Canaan. And so Elijah said to him, you tarry here, you stay here because I'm going to Jericho. And Elisha said the same thing, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave. And so they came to Jericho. Sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said the same thing. Do you know that your master will take away uh, your master from your head today? And he answered, yes, I know it. Hold you your peace. Then Elijah said to him, tarry here, I pray. Stay here, wait here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. Now we come to the place that the Israelites crossed over, the famous Jordan River, when the priest crossed over and the Bible says that the waters parted as the priest stood in the water many, many years before this. And he said, as the Lord lives, as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And they too went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle, wrapped it together, smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I be taken from you. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so unto you. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Horse, horses, chariots of fire that we read about in the Old Testament. 
See, that's exactly the symbol that you find in 2 Kings chapter 6 that you'll study about tomorrow. Sometimes in the Bible you'll find that angelic beings, they're represented in many, many different ways. But one of them that Hebrews 1 verse 7 talks about is that he made his ministers a flame of fire. He made his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Oftentimes in the Bible, angels are represented under the figure of a fire. And so this is talking about the time when Elijah is taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it. Just like Elijah had said, Elisha saw it and he cried, My father and my mother, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and smote the waters and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah does rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with your servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray you, and seek your master. Lest peradventure the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought him three days, but they found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? And the men of the city said unto Elijah, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is naught, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth to the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. And when he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord and there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. So what I want to do for just a few minutes this afternoon is to talk about a few practical lessons from, from this chapter in the little time that I have. In the first few verses, you have Elijah saying, I'm, I'm going to Bethel. Gilgal. I'm going to, to Bethel, and then I'm going to Jericho, and then I'm going to the Jordan. And each time he says, now, Elisha, you stay here. And Elisha, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm, I'm going with you. Now, there might be a lot of words that you would attach to that on the part of Elisha, as far as his character is concerned, or the purpose of Elijah saying that. So I'm not going to get into the speculation of that. But I think you would have to say that, that he's loyal. I think you would have to say that he wants to be with him to the very end, that he wants to have every opportunity that he, that he can get to be with him to the very end. I'm going to use the word persistence. You might have a different word. You might have a better word than that. But if you could just grant me that word, I'm, I'm going to say that he's persistent. He's very persistent about this. He's not going to give up. He's going to stay with him to the very end. And it's interesting to me that this same Elijah, when he meets with Jehoram, the king, later, and he's talking about the 
threat of war with the Syrians, he told King Jehoram, he said, I want you to, uh, I want you to take these arrows, and I want you to strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground one, two, three times, and the Bible says that Elisha the prophet was angry with him. He said, why did you do that? He said, you should have smitten, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Why did you do just three, one, two, three times? Just interesting to me that the persistence that we see here in chapter 2 of Elijah is a lesson that he's trying to teach later, and he was disappointed in the king there because he was not persistent enough with what he had told him. Now, when we look at this persistence, old Elijah is going to need this endurance. He's going to need a lot of patience. It's going to take a lot of, as, as we call it, stick to itiveness. He's going to have to stick to it because he's going to be challenged. There are going to be all kinds of challenges that he is going to face, all kinds of disappointments. They start here in chapter 2. You've already seen one of them where he gets mocked by these youth. And then as you progress through these chapters, you'll find that he undergoes all kinds of personal trials. He intercedes with, with kings. He deals with all kinds of nations. He is dealing with, with people who are in all kinds of, of horrible situations like Naaman, the Syrian, and so forth. But, you know, one of the things that, that I did want to bring out about his persistence is how his life ended. You remember how his life ended, Elijah the prophet? Well, he dealt with something that we all, or at least a lot of us, have to deal with, and that is sickness. And uh, the Bible says in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14, that Elijah fell sick of the sickness whereof he would die. So, you see, he didn't believe, and the Bible doesn't teach this doctrine that some, not all, but some Pentecostals have, that is, if you have enough faith, you won't get sick. You know, they literally, some of them literally do practice that. They literally do preach that, I should say. Can't practice it, but they do preach that. That if you have enough faith, you're not going to get sick, and you're going to be, it's the health and wealth gospel. It's not just a, not just a label that somebody's put on there. They literally, literally preach that. Did Elisha have enough faith? I think that he did. But even though he did all these miracles that we read about in the Bible, what happened to him? He got sick. He was not healed from that. God had the power to heal him, but he didn't. Just an interesting sideline there, or at least something to connect to this. So Elisha the prophet then was a man who was very persistent. He was a man that would not give up. And that's exactly what we're going to have to have to make it through this life. So I would bring in certain passages like Galatians 6 verse 9 where the Bible says, let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall faint not. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. A great commentary, a great commentary on this idea of persistence is the whole book of Hebrews. The whole New Testament, as far as that's concerned, but the whole book of Hebrews is written to encourage people to endure to the end. Don't give up, don't quit. 
You've been through some hard times. You're going to face even more hard times. But don't give up. It's a great, great book in that way. So when you read through this book then, and you look at this life of this great prophet, Elijah, I would suggest that the word persistence is a word that, that, that really plays a part. Number two, I would like for you to think about the word spirit. And I mentioned a minute ago that, you know, if, if you ask several preachers about this, you're going to get different angles on it. I'm going to give you one here. Um, a double portion of your spirit. He, he asked Elijah, I, I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, one idea about that is, well, is he talking about the Holy Spirit? <clears throat> is he talking about the Holy Spirit? Is he talking about the, the additional power, if there was additional power? Is he talking about all the miracles, let me put it that way, that, that Elisha did? That maybe that's what is meant by a double portion of your spirit, because Elijah did these great deeds, these great miracles. Now, Elijah comes on the scene, and the first thing that happens is he takes that mantle, he parts the Jordan River, and he heals those waters, and he's healing Naaman, the, 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 the leper, and just the axe head floating, and, and all those miracles that you find in the life of, of Elijah. It could be involved in that, could be. Uh, I, I wouldn't argue with you a, a whole lot about that. It does say his spirit, you know, a double portion of your spirit, might, might somehow wrap the Holy Spirit into that as far as miraculous power is concerned. But let me, let me suggest to you something that, that I believe is a, a good commentary on that. I love saying that to people. I love telling people, I'm, I'm going to give you a, a commentary on that, a commentary to read. And they usually think I'm talking about a human commentary and I'm talking about the Bible. But I think Luke 1.17 is a good commentary on that. Because Luke 1.17 says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So if we can find out some things about John the Baptist then and what kind of spirit and character he had, then that will tell us something about Elijah's spirit and Elijah's character. Now, I want to tie in with that an earlier statement that's found in Luke 1, verse 15. Just before that, Luke 1, verse 15, the angel said that he, that is John the Baptist, will be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Think about that. Filled with the Holy Ghost, from birth, from his mother's womb. Now that's got to be, that has to be a non-miraculous indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Has to be. We think that he did miracles when he was two weeks old. We think he was speaking in tongues when he was two years old or two weeks old. No. I mean, there's, there's point blank proof that the Spirit can indwell without a person doing miracles. Matter of fact, John 10 verse 41 says that the people said, John did no miracle. That is an outward sign. You don't find John the Baptist, you don't find John the Baptist casting out demons, raising the dead, healing the sick, and things like that. And if you think about it, there's really at least one important reason behind that. If, if John the Baptist had been out there not only preaching and drawing those crowds <clears throat> and baptizing people, if he'd been healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons, then people would have sure enough thought he's the Messiah. Because you remember, they came to him anyway and said, are you, are you the Christ? Are you the one? So there might be a divine purpose as to why John the Baptist did not do those outward acts. Now, I know that him being a prophet was miraculous. I understand that. But I'm talking about the outward signs here <clears throat> and the relation to that and the whole idea of that. So when you look at John the Baptist then, 
when you look at John the Baptist, and it says that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Both words. The spirit and power of Elijah. And John the Baptist is, is not doing the miraculous acts that Elijah did. Then, to me, that has to point to his character. has to point to his inward spirit. Not the outward signs, but, but his character, his fervor. And so... Just to give an opinion here, and as preachers, sometimes we can't avoid giving an opinion when we're looking through some of these texts and we're supposed to explain them. I think it's basically what it's talking about. I think it's talking about his boldness, his courage, his fervor, his, his, his endurance, his strength of character, and maybe other things that are involved in that. Give me a double portion of your spirit. Elijah had that kind of spirit. Elisha needs that kind of spirit. It, it, it kind of reminds you, too, of an offer that God had made earlier to a famous man in the Bible. You remember that God said to Solomon, ask, what do you want? What do you want? And you remember that, that Solomon asked for wisdom? Now, Elijah, the prophet, he says, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And if you want to ask something, go ahead. And so he says, I want a double portion of, of your spirit. And you notice that that Elijah said, you've asked a hard thing. You've asked a hard thing here. It would have been an easy thing for God to give him the miraculous ability. But however that worked, however that was developed, however he attained to that strength, and how his free will is in, was involved with that, and how he grew to, to have that, how all those things fit together, I can't answer all that any more than I can answer a question like this, and that is, well, when you pray for strength, how does God do that? Well, there are a lot of ways there, there are a lot of things involved in that. When, when you all have prayed for us, when, when you have said, Lord, help him to remember what he's prepared to say, well, that's not answered by a miracle, but there's some kind of providential activity involved in that, or else why would we pray it? When we pray for the sick, when we pray for a safe trip home, and we're not just acknowledging the laws of nature, we're saying that God has some part in that. You say, explain that. I can't, I don't need to. I just need to trust it. I just need to trust it. And so <clears throat> here we have a very, very important point that we need to remember and think a lot about. And that is, as we go forward, we're going to need courage. We're going to need strength. We're going to need the kind of boldness that Elijah had and that Elijah showed. And Elijah wants it. And Elijah had it. I want to read to you something that I found years ago. And I doubt that you'll be able to look this up on the Internet, so if you want to take this down, I read it out of an old book. I don't know anything else about this guy. I was just doing some reading in the library, doing some research, happened to pick up this book, and, and just read this, and I thought, wow, this is great. So I had one of the secretaries at school to, to type this, and I want to read it to you. This is from a man by the name of W.W. Brees, B-R-E-E-S-E, -E, in 1883. I can get you the book. It would take me a little while to, to find that. Like I said, you, you're probably not going to find this on the Internet, um, but, but here's how it reads. And I want you to think about this, men, especially the males, the males in the audience today. The greatest need, the greatest need. He said in 1883, the greatest want of this age is men. Men who are not for sale, men who are honest, sound from center to circumference, true to the heart's core, men who will condemn wrong in friend or foe, in themselves as well as others, 
Men whose consciences are steady as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right if the heavens totter and the earth reels. Men who can tell the truth and look the devil right in the eye. Men that never brag nor run. Men that neither swagger nor flinch. Men who can have courage without whistling for it and joy without shouting to bring it. Men in whom the current of everlasting life runs still and deep and strong. Men careful of God's honor and careless of men's applause. Men who know their duty and do it. Men who know their places and fill them. Men who will not lie. Men who are not too lazy to work nor too proud to be poor. Men who are willing to eat what they have earned and wear what they have paid for. Men whose feet are on the everlasting rock. Men who are strong with divine strength, <clears throat> wise with the wisdom that comes from above, and loving with the love of Christ, men of God, W.W. W. Brees, 1883. And I say to those words a hearty amen. We need men in this generation. We need men because the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, and he tells us today, act like men. The New King James Version translates that, be brave. It actually has the male idea of it in that word. Act like a man. Be a man about it. And we need that today. We need it today because people are being indoctrinated and young men are being told and indoctrinated not to act like a man today. They're being told, and young women are being told, everybody's the same. But we've got generations of, of kids that have grown up and they're adults now, and they've been told that a young woman who weighs 120 pounds can toss a 250-pound man across the room. We've got young men that think that they're supposed to be as good at nurturing as a young woman. They don't know the difference. They don't know that God, God made males and females differently. He made us differently. Men are stronger. Women have the more nurturing capacity, the more affectionate capacity. We're different. God made us that way. It doesn't mean that one has more moral worth or spiritual value in the sight of God than the other. It just means that we're different, and we fill those roles. But it's just sad that we're living in a culture where that's being erased, that line between male and female is being erased. And whenever that happens in a society, that culture is in trouble, folks. That trouble, that trouble is going to keep getting worse and worse, and that's where we're at right now. Let's be men. Let's be men. And being a man in the church means that sometimes you have to overlook things that bother you. Sometimes you have to let little things go. Sometimes you have to let personalities take a back seat and not get involved in things that are going to just pull you away from the work of the Lord. So that's number two. Number three, I'm going to say the word acceptance, acceptance. You notice that the sons of the prophets want to go find Elijah. They want, they want to go find Elijah. Now, whether that means his body is corpse or whether that they thought that he's alive, I want to even get into that. But what my point is, is this, is that that they're still trying to cling to the past. They're still trying to hang on to somebody back there. And as we go forward in the church, as we go forward as Christian people, we've got to learn to stand on our own. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. This has been years ago, but there was a student that came to me at the Bible College, and, and he, he was talking about two of our teachers that were well-known, well-known in, in the brotherhood. And he said, what are we going to do when brother and brother die? He said, what, what are we going to do? He said, they, they need to write more. They, they need to write down and, and, and put all their knowledge in print because what are we going to do when they're gone? And I, I looked at him and I said, well, I think we'll still have the same Bible, won't we? I think we'll still have the same truth, won't we? I mean, are we, are, are we that dependent on a man to have the answers? I appreciate those guys. I've learned a lot from them. I've sat at their feet. 
So I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. But you can go to an extreme with that. And sometimes that's what happens. So it is a sad thing that, that we have people in the past that are not with us anymore. I mean, that happens in your personal life. That might be your mother, your father, your grandfather, your grandmother that you've depended on in the church that gave you that spiritual support, that really encouraged you, and was, was, was really an anchor. And I'm not, I'm not saying to go back and, and quote that person. I'm not saying that, that, that you shouldn't think about that and draw from that strength. What I am saying is that you reach a point where you have to go on. You have to go on with your life. Don't forget them, but you have to stand on your own two feet. Now, that might be a parent. It might be a spouse. It might be a preacher that you've really, really depended on. It might be an elder that you've really, really leaned on. It could be anybody. But these, these people had to eventually do something, and it took them a few days to do it. They had to come to grips with reality. He's not here anymore. He's not with us. He's not going to be with us anymore. We've got to go on. We've got to learn to defend the truth on our own. We've got to learn to find the answers ourselves. And God being our helper, we will do that. Number four. As Elijah went forward, he had to have what we call back home thick skin. Thick skin. So what happens here? You've got a situation where these young men mock him. They make fun of him. Elisha the prophet. There's nothing new in the Bible. I mean, people made fun of Jesus, and Jesus said if they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call those of his household? Matthew chapter 10, verse 25. So they're going to make fun of you. They're going to mock you. They're going to criticize you. That is going to happen. Now that story, that story in the last part of 2 Kings chapter 2 has been used as a rod by atheists and agnostics for years to beat us over the head with. How can that happen? I mean, all they did was go out there and mock him, and, and God punished them 42, you know, uh, of these, King James says, children. That means young people. It, means young, it doesn't mean little, little small children. But how, how can that happen? Robert Ingersoll, one of the famous atheists in this country, Bertrand Russell, one of the famous British uh, agnostics, they have written about that and criticized the Bible, and there are young people that have gone to universities that have read those books and said, so this is the holy book that you're talking about. So this is the good book that you're talking about here then. How do you explain this story here? That's a real moral problem, don't you think? Well, if they're atheists, there is no such thing as right and wrong, so what are you talking about, right? Now, young people, just remember that simple thing. They can't have it both ways. They want their cake, and they want to eat it too. What they want is, they want to say there is no such thing as right and wrong because there is no God. But the very minute, the very minute that they want to find an accusation against the Bible, say, well, that's wrong. Or, or when they are personally wronged, when somebody steals from them, when somebody hurts them, when somebody kills one of their loved ones, the first thing they say is, that is wrong. You can have it both ways, folks. We're either made in the image of God or we're just animals and it doesn't make any difference. And they don't want to really be consistent with that. But Elijah is criticized, and we're going to be criticized too. And as you look through, as you look through that story and look through the Old Testament, let me just give you another commentary to read. I wish we had time to look into this. The past year and a half, I've learned more about a book that we've been studying on Wednesday night than I've ever learned in my life. I've read the book of Isaiah, don't know everything about it, would never even claim to know anywhere near what I'd like to know about it. We've been in the book of Isaiah I think since the 1900s, something like that. You know? 
that's, that's probably what the people at West End think because we've been taking our time and going through that book. But it has come to light. What the book of Isaiah has come to light more in the last year and a half is our society has begun to, to fall apart as things have begun to change like they have and the changes have come to the surface. Commentary that I'd like for you to read on this idea of respect and social disorder and what happens once a society begins to, to crumble and the supports of that society begin to collapse, Isaiah chapter 3. And that is all about, that is all about the lack of male leadership. Isaiah chapter 3. When that happens, when that happens, that society becomes very disrespectful. People turn against each other. That's what that chapter is about. So I would encourage you to go back and look at that because it is just an interesting, very, very interesting depiction. And I believe it's a portrait of some of the things that, that we're finding going on all around us today. And as we go forward, as we go forward, and we see society changing, this society, cultures throughout the world, as we see our country changing and the, the government becoming more and more restrictive of religious freedom. Folks, like I said last night, I don't mean to repeat myself too much here, and I don't remember all the examples that I gave last night. can't remember because, you know, you rehearse these things in your mind, and then you say, well, did I say that in my mind, or did I say it before the people here? But this has been going on for some time here in this country, 2010. 2010? Did I say it last night? 2010, the four people that were arrested in Dearborn, Michigan? Okay, so this is new to you. Okay, just, if I said it last night, just act like it's new. No, but evidently I didn't. I intended to bring it up last night. Four, four young people, four teenagers, on a sidewalk in Dearborn, Michigan, were passing out copies of the book of John to some Muslims who were on their way to attend an Islamic festival. You know what happened? They were arrested. They were arrested. That's right. 2015, 2015, Kentucky, after the Supreme Court ruled the ungodly hearing about same-sex marriage and said that it's perfectly legal in the United States, there was a woman in Kentucky, county court clerk, that refused to issue a marriage license to two men. And what happened to her? She was put in jail. She was put in jail. And 2020 comes. And we find people are arrested for going to church here in this country, in this land, in our own country. Now, folks, once a civilization reaches the point that we're describing here, it doesn't just go back after a disease is over, if it's ever over. That doesn't happen. Once it reaches that threshold, once it's pushed to that point, it doesn't go back. And history shows us that. And I wish I had time to, uh, to talk from the book of Isaiah about how God works in civilizations. You know, we, we oftentimes look at the book of Daniel, which is great, which is great because the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomsoever he will, sets up over at the basis of men. God, God works in governments to bring about his will. But I would encourage you to look at the book of Isaiah with that thought in mind. It's incredible what you'll learn about God working in and through nations and how that, that he coordinates he coordinates this nation, this nation, this nation, this nation, at the same time, looking 500, 1,000 years down the road, and he knows exactly what he's doing with all those. Absolutely incredible. So as we look around us and see all of the trouble and all of the, the, the worries that are there, that are legitimate, and we need to be prepared for those, you can, go in an, you can go to an extreme in either direction. I understand that. But 
as we look at, at, at the, <clears throat> the problems that are there, don't forget the divine perspective because the hand of God is at work in this world. The hand of God is at work in this world. And I don't understand it. I don't know it exactly how he does that, but I know it's at work. So I know I've uh, preached uh, maybe a little longer than I intended to here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. What I, if I had my preference, what I would do right now is open this up for, for questions for a long time. But unfortunately, we've got to catch a plane. We've got to catch a plane. So God bless each and every one of you. Um, apologize that I can't just stand around and shake your hand and, and uh, tell you how much I appreciate you face to face. But thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. God bless you if we can ever serve you in any way whatsoever. God bless the congregation here. Keep the faith. Thank you.